This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. And welcome into the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Tom Oates, glad to be here with you once again. And we come to you each month with the perspectives, lessons, insights, and innovations moving the child welfare field forward that hopefully you can take away and help improve the lives of children, youth, and families. Hey, if you are new to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and get caught up on the valuable conversations we've had across nearly 80 episodes, and you can receive each and every new conversation each month. Okay, this is a special episode. We're going to try to explain what's being done at the federal level to create greater equity throughout child welfare and how that connects to the work being done by state, local, and tribal agencies that directly work with children, youth, and families. This is a conversation with Children's Bureau Associate Commissioner Asia E. Schomburg, who, as we recorded this, has reached one year as Associate Commissioner. Time enough to understand the role and environment of the Children's Bureau and its 10 regional offices, but also time enough to listen and gather information from, and you'll hear more about this, agencies, families, those with lived experience, and as Commissioner Schomburg put it, accountability partners. Now, before being appointed to her role with the Children's Bureau, Commissioner Schomburg was Senior Administrator for Program Oversight for the New York City's Administration for Children's Services. Now, there she developed ACS's operational infrastructure plans and capacity building strategies across the agency's program. Now, also, and this has a connection to our conversation, she provided counsel to New York City's Office of Equity Strategies on the implementation of the ACS Race Equity Plan and has provided recommendations on how to tackle inequities and racism in child welfare. Aza Schomburg is a graduate of New York Law School and was appointed by the Biden administration to her post as Associate Commissioner of the Children's Bureau back on April 7th of 2021. So recently, the commissioner articulated the Children's Bureau's priority goals and vision, with CB's highest priority being to promote equity in state child welfare systems. Part of this included four priority goals to help drive how equity is advanced in child welfare. Prevent children from coming into foster care. Support kinship caregivers. Ensure youth leave care with strengthened relationships, holistic supports, and opportunities and develop and enhance the child welfare workforce. Now, we dive into each of those, talking about what's being done at the federal level and how this can be implemented at the state, local, and tribal level, but also talk about maintaining connections in the field and what she's hearing from professionals, partners, families, those with lived experiences, and how those connections were paramount to developing the priorities. We also get into the challenges of working these across a diverse nation, with diverse needs. Now, before we start, I want you to listen to a word that we don't hear enough of on the podcast. You know, we talk a lot about innovations, tools, lessons, and implementing practice, but perhaps we don't hear enough about the word love. Okay, let's get to it. Threading equity throughout child welfare with Children's Bureau Associate Commissioner Asia E. Schomburg here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Associate Commissioner Asia Schomburg, welcome in to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Tom. I appreciate it. And so let's just dive right into it. It has been about a year since you've been on board at the federal level. And I want to first talk about your time here and the vision that you, you've put forward. So if it's okay, I'm going to read something that you wrote and ask you to react to it a little bit, but about your vision. And here it is word for word, a loving approach to helping children obtain what they need to live with dignity 
by comprehensively supporting families through a collaborative network of carefully selected resources and effective public and private investments, grounded in community and culture, and a workforce fully devoted to serving with intentional equity. That's awfully broad, but it does put child welfare in a position of moving forward. I'm curious to how you came up with with this particular vision. Well, Tom, I think um, when I was thinking about um, sort of creating a vision, the first thing I thought about is like, why do I do this work? You know, what? Why do I wake up in the morning when I'm really, really exhausted and and continue to do the work of supporting children and families? And um, and I and I do it for love. I do it because I love um, children and families because I think supporting children is the most important thing that we um, uh, can and must do as a society. So I wanted to start there. And then I also think that when we think about how we support our children, right, um, we approach it with love. You know, we allow our children to make make mistakes. Um, and we, um, and, you know, I think everything that we do, um, we should do with uh, the love of our children in mind. So I wanted to really start out with that, a loving approach to helping children obtain what they need. And that happens, you know, we do that in our own families, but we should also be doing it in child welfare and in other systems, if you will, that support children and families. Um, I thought really, you know, allowing them to live with dignity is really important here, right? We want for children and families, and I always try to use those together because children aren't living separately, right? They live within their families, um, but we want to be able to support them to live a, a life of dignity. And, and doing that by, you know, a network of resources, um, community-based. That's why I put grounded in community and culture, right? So you want it to be community-based, but you also want it to acknowledge and appreciate uh, culture there. It's important because when we think about how we're going to support people and support families, we have to take it into, into consideration their community and culture. Community is broad. Community is a group to which anyone belongs. It could be, it could be a geographical community. Uh, it, it could be a, a, a cultural community, an ethnic community, but I think that we need to take that into consideration, right, when we are thinking about how we support families. Um, just like children are part of families, families are part of communities. Families have cultural um, um, practices and um, norms that we need to respect and acknowledge when we think about how we help families. And then, of course, you know, the last part of that vision statement, which is really um, a workforce which is fully de devoted to serving with intentional equity. Um, you've probably heard me talk a lot about the importance of equity um, in child welfare, but also in other systems and equity in terms of how we support our families. And so our workforce also needs to be fully devoted to, um, to serving with equity, to keeping equity at the center of the work that we do um, and at the center of helping all families um, when we come in contact with them. Yeah, and equity is definitely something that I, I want to be able to spend some time when we talk uh, in, in a few minutes and really dive into not only as you talked about the vision, but the priorities and, and the goals. And equity is is threaded all, all the way all the way through. Um, so you moved into this role from New York City, which is a, a behemoth in amongst itself, but it's still a local agency and where you're able to at least get more of a connection to those who are working in cases on a day-to-day -day basis. But now at this role at the federal level, can you give me a sense of what you're able to do to kind of maintain that connection to what's happening now uh, at the state, local and tribal levels? So, you know, I, I do want to say that even when we're, you know, it, when I was in New York City, we were always looking to see what other jurisdictions were doing, um, what sort of innovative uh, practices um, were popping up. Um, when we had a particular problem, um, we would, you know, t take a look at what, what was happening in other parts of the country or how they might be dealing with it. So um, in New York City, we've been very successful, but we've also... Um, sort of use the landscape of what's happening nationwide to help inform any strategy that we would um, sort of employ. And then when I came to this position, I realized, okay, the world is much, much bigger than New York City. Um, and so how do I um, really un understand what's happening um, across the country? And, you know, it was really kind of easy um, because I have regional offices and regional program managers and um, uh, child welfare program specialists. 
And, you know, my first um, sort of line of communication was with them to sort of touch base with my, my regional offices to say, you know, tell me what's happening. And the, the benefit of being in a virtual world meant that I could be in several regions within one week. You know, I could do three regions in, in, a, in a particular day where we would literally, you know, have conversations. And they were so important um, because it was there that I learned a lot about, like, what's happening um, across the country. So those, you know, you know, those meetings and, you know, my communication with the regional offices has been truly very, very important. And in addition to that, of course, hearing from parents and youth themselves impacted by the system, either in foster care or um, having left foster care or somehow having been impacted by child welfare or other systems, you know, listening to what they have to say about how, um, about, about their experience and about, you know, how improvements can be made. Um, and then, of course, I have other, you know, um, advocacy organizations and what I call, uh, you know, external accountability partners who have been really, really important in helping me to understand um, the, the landscape of, of, of what is happening across the country and, you know, where we should uh, focus. I like the way you termed them as accountability partners as in terms of I need to I need to put the mirror on myself. I need to have that lens turn around. What am I missing or what are we doing differently or what should we be doing? I'm curious, has there been any common themes in terms of what you're hearing from all of these groups? Yeah, you know, listen, I'm hearing a lot. <laughs> you know, and every the truth is everything is a priority and I'm hearing a lot. But from young from parents and from youth, I'm hearing, you know, we don't want to be system involved. We don't want to be over surveilled. Um, you know, there's there's all as there, yeah, you know, listen, I've been, you know, in, in uh, child welfare for many, many years, and it's always been an emphasis on, you know, prevention, right? Ideally, you know, we would keep families together and keep children out of care. And that's what I've been hearing from, you know, from parents and, and, and young people, like, you know, help me before um, I need to be uh, child welfare impacted. So that's the number one thing I'm hearing about prevention. Like, you know, we need to do everything that we possibly can to keep families together and keeping them away from the system. But I'm also hearing that we need to support grandparents and kinship parents who step up to care for the children in their family, but, but who aren't getting this, getting the support that they need. I've heard, you know, Hey, you know, from grandparents, like, you know, I have three grandchildren that I'm, that I am, I'm trying to support. I'm retired, for example. And, you know, I, I need, I need help. Um, and so we have to hear that. I'm hearing from young people who, uh, aged out of the foster care system or who are about to age out of the foster care system that say, you know, I don't have everything that I need. I need more supportive relationships. I need more resources. I need opportunities. I want to be able to work. I want to be able to go to school. And so we have to hear that. And then, of course, sadly, I'm hearing about the mass resignations that are happening, you know, in our field and, you know, that are, you know, our field, frankly, is in, is in crisis. A lot of what you've just told me I can see back in, and we'll dive into the priorities and goals that you've announced. And so before we, we really dive in, into those, with all these conversations, could you explain how you're able to take all this information from everyone and, and maybe put some weight into it? What did you do to be able to, to, to develop and identify those priorities and goals that we'll talk about in a second? Over your over really the first year. I mean, this was not something that you announced in the first month, but something you've put together over the first year. So I'm curious about what this past year of listening has been like, and what you did to develop and identify your priorities and goals. Yeah, you you actually answered the question in the question because that's what I did. Like I I listened. You know, I spent I spent eight or nine months really just you know um, meeting with you know pretty much anyone who would ask because there's always something to be learned from a conversation um, and, and having really thoughtful uh, conversations about not only what the problems are, but what the solutions are. That's also really important. Not, not that we, um, you know, um, that we not focus on the problems necessarily, but that we also have an opportunity to determine what some of the solutions are. And, um, by that, I mean not only the solutions that we talk about often, but the solutions that may be a little bit different, solutions that push the envelope. Um, and so, yeah, it was a, it was a, a listening um, excursion, Tom. And that's how I was able to sort of um, figure out what would uh, bubble to the top as, you know, the, the overall um, priority goals. But with that, it was really, really hard because when you're talking about children and families and support, 
you know, everything is a, everything is a priority. And, and frankly, you know, everything is urgent, but, um, but the conversations that I had over the, the first eight or nine months in the role helped me to figure out how we, you know, um, sort of categorize our priorities. And then, you know, there's so much work to be done within each of those. So let's start. The highest priority, which I guess is not a separate goal, but we use the term threading through, promoting equity in state child welfare systems. And we are... 15 months as we record this, 15 months away from the end of 2020, though the, the tumult and kind of the, 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 the introspective nature that 2020 made us move forward in um, is clear, at least clear in the federal government from the executive order on advancing racial equity uh, and support for underserved communities throughout the federal government. Uh, And that makes a a clear statement about advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities. But you've added it in as your highest priority. Can you tell me why that you think this is so important when it comes through the administration to the the casework, to the interviews, to the actual boots on the ground impacting lives and families? You know, I love this executive order, Tom, and I talk about it wherever I go. you know, the executive order really calls on the federal government to make changes, right? It's the first of its kind. It calls on us to make the necessary and transformational changes to make our programs more equitable. So in all of the programs of the federal government that, you know, serve children and families, we need to be focusing on equity with respect to, you know, our, you know, access and outcomes for these families, you know? The, the executive order starts out by saying that, you know, equal opportunity is the bedrock of American democracy. But we know, like, you know, in this country, we have a complicated relationship with equity and with equality. Um, you know, so it talks about fairness, but we also know that for black and brown, LGBTQ plus folks and those at the intersections, um, as well as members of of communities that have been historically underserved or or disproportionately impacted by poverty. Um, We know that for them, you know, equality, equity, fairness has been like elusive. And so, you know, it was really important. And I was really grateful that this administration on its first, on the president's first day in office made this a priority for the federal government, because it really kind of um, gives the federal government really the green light to go as far as we possibly can to um, to advance um, racial equity and support for underserved communities. And I want to make sure that I mention um, our tribal partners here. Um, we have a government-to-government relationship with the tribe. They do not consider um, themselves to be a racial group, but a political group. However, when we look at the history of how uh, our nation has treated um, tribes and tribal communities, there is a uh, you know, uh, rampant inequities there too. So we have a lot of work to do and this executive order has sort of been the foundation for a lot of the work that I think that we'll do in child welfare and certainly the, um, the priority goals that, you know, we've identified. Well, some of this actually goes right back into, into your vision. You've used terms like dignity and culture and, and equity um, so where, where you even say green light, it, it almost makes it the um, part of the, the initiative, the, 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 the authority even, or the responsibility to start at, at the federal level. Um, so going back to, I guess, a vision. So in your mind, um, what would be the difference? What would child welfare look like, act like if it did operate? under a, a true era of racial equity and greater support for underserved communities? Well, you know, I just you know, first want to say there are many systems in our nation that have failed at advancing equity and child welfare is just one of them. I mean, you can just take a look at the history. You can think about the orphan trains, um, the boarding schools for native children, the over surveillance and criminalization, frankly, of black and brown families. And so, you know, Where child welfare is concerned, all you have to do, Tom, is look at like the statistics. Who is in care? You know, which children have been separated from their families? And like for me, I feel like we constantly need to be in a posture of pursuit of justice for black and brown children who have been overrepresented in the system. Um, You know, and the reason for that is, you know, we have a 
like I said, an overrepresentation of black and brown children in the system. But when you look at the outcomes, you see that those children don't have a fair shot at success. They don't have a fair shot at life, right? Sometimes they beat the odds. Um, but in general, it, they, they start at a deficit where other children don't. So I think that, you know, we need to, we need to do right by those children. So what does it look like? You know, when, when you ask me about, well, you know, what, what equity looks like and racial equity looks like and the child welfare system, yeah, the first thing I think about is what the inequities are, right? So I think about the, again, the over surveillance. I think about the mandated reporting, you know, which is sort of laden with, with bias. Um, we have people calling and calling child protection on children who show up um, in a classroom or in an after-school program with dirty clothes. Like in a perfect world, a child a child welfare system wouldn't even take that call, but they would point in another direction. And that direction would be here are here are uh, uh, here's a conglomerate of community resources that are there to help this family. Perhaps the family is struggling, you know, with poverty or there's some other issue. Um, but that it's not a child protection issue necessarily, right? That, you know, in a perfect world, that a, a mandated reporter would only make a call when a child is in imminent danger. Um, and so we have a lot of, of work to do there as well. So that, I think that's, you know, that, that's what I think of when I think of advancing equity, because what, what you find is that those calls, those calls that come in, the over surveillance that leads to those calls, um, really is what leads to the disproportionality that we've been discussing, the black and brown children that are, that are, um, that are in care. Um, and this happens nationwide. It happens around the, uh, around the country where there's a particular, um, you know, ethnic, culture, racial group that are being um, sent um, into the foster care system rather than being, rather than being helped. Part of what you've described go through the outcomes, right? And but within the highest priority, as you've listed, we're talking about equity in state child welfare systems. And you you touched base that there are multiple systems throughout the government that you know have 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 to come with some some ideas of of reckoning and change. But let's flip this around and talk about the impact of. Uh, an equitable system to the child welfare agencies themselves. So when we talk about what would it look like, what would it act like, what would the agencies look like? What would the agencies act like in an era as what's in this vision and and looking forward? I think you probably heard this before that, you know, when a child welfare field is truly successful, we'd kind of all be looking for a new job, right? It wouldn't exist if, you know, if the child welfare system was truly um, was, was truly equitable, the system would be a fraction, a small fraction of what it is right now. Like there would be, you know, there there might be a need for uh, for um, a certain type of support for 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 certain children and certain families, but it would be so small because like. You know, in an ideal world, right, the community would always come together. Extended family community would always come together to support a child or a family in need. So you wouldn't necessarily need government systems to uh, interact with your families to do so. There are places in this world where foster care is unheard of. A child needs help, a family needs help, a parent needs help, the community comes together to help that family. So, you know, I think I think, you know, a, a truly equitable system, because we know it's so so um, unfortunately inequitable, would um, would create a really, 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 really small system if, if there needed to be one at all. So let's dive a little deeper into, into the systems themselves. And so for, you know, the majority of our audience are those who work uh, in child welfare systems themselves. And so while the federal government now has the green light to start really making change, we also need to see change at the the state, local, and tribal levels. So I'd like to walk through uh, each of those four goals that you've you've laid out and uh, overarching to thread this equity in, in state child welfare systems. But I'd like to get a, a sense from you on two things. First, well, what's being done for each of these goals at the federal level? And then secondly, 
what those working at the local, the casework level can do to, to kind of live or embody these goals. So, so if it's okay, there are these, I, sh- I shouldn't tell you, you're the ones who wrote them, but uh, the four goals. So let's, we'll start, we'll start with the first one of prevent children from coming into foster care. So if you could, what's being done at the federal level? And then what can those within the agencies themselves do to, to, to live those goals? So prevention should always be the number one priority that we have, right? You know, that again, and it goes to my, my, my statement um, that I just made that in a perfect world, we wouldn't even need, we wouldn't even need foster care, right? Um, That we would be helping families before there was some need to separate families. Um, First thing I think of when I think about what the federal government is doing is the Family First First Prevention and Services Act, what we call FFPSA. Um, It's intended to prevent children from coming into care. It actually shifts the, um, you know, the, the resources, the funding resources, it redefines, reprioritizes the funding and says, let's help families before there's a need to come into care. Um, and so it, you know, it has the potential to um, really, um, I think, sort of uh, push as far as we can in this direction of, of, of upstream. And by that, I mean, um, you know, helping families um, as soon as we know uh, that they need help, um, and in a way that prevents them sort of from from even coming in the direction of the child welfare system, right? Um, and so the Family First Prevention Services Act um, is in a is is the way one way in which the federal government is saying yes, we want you to be able to support families in 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 in, in um, upfront and and before there's a need for foster care. Really important. I think also states need to take a look at their statutory definition of neglect. This is one of the things that I've also been talking about a lot. You know, across the country, you know, each state has a definition of neglect. And some, you know, I've, I've reviewed the definitions of all of the states, actually. And, you know, what I would say to uh, states and, you know, their uh, legislature is, you know, what does your definition of neglect say about the door to foster care? Um, does it does it conflate, you know, um, um, with with poverty? Um, does it conflate neglect with poverty? Is it a conveyor belt for families who, you know, might just really just need help? Um, I've also been talking a lot about cash assistance for families. And we know that there are some times when, you know, families, I, I talked earlier about a child with dirty clothes, perhaps that family just needs help with money to, you know, um, you know, do laundry and that sort of thing. And so I think we need to start talking about some of the things that, you know, um, <clears throat> I don't think that government has been um, has been ta- has been comfortable talking about previously, like helping families with cash assistance. So, all the states need to take a uh, take a look at their definition of neglect and examine and where needed amend those definitions um, so that they are not uh, confused uh, with poverty or or criminalizing poverty even. Um, I would say interagency par- partnerships are very important. Um, I would say to, to, to folks at the state and local level, when was the last time you had a conversation with your housing agencies or with, you know, your Department of Education? You know, we serve mutual families. Um, and, you know, do, for example, do you have a contact at the Department of Education? Can you, that can you, you can pick up and call about anything. We can't work in a vacuum when, we call, when we're supporting families and children. We've got to be able to have conversations with those other systems, for example. Um, and that also helps with prevention when we're in constant communication. It was one of the things that when I was in New York City, um, I, I, um, it was one of my, my main priorities. And then probably lastly, and check your biases. You know, for those of us who are mandated reporters, ask yourself, like, why are you making this call? Is this child in imminent uh, danger? Or are there, is, another, is there another option? You know, um, we need to sometimes as mandated reporters, like surveil ourselves, you know, and um, figure out like, you know, what besides making this call to child protection, which might cause this child harm to the rest of their life. um, What else could I do to help this family? This goes back to as much as you talked about some legal changes or understanding how a state defines neglect. I'm going to pull back to maybe one of the first sentences you uttered in our conversation about a loving family and whether laundry or housing uh, can prevent someone 
from having a loving family, that's the, those are two completely separate issues. But if you're able to support the loving family with the bridge that they may need, then you've got a family that stays together. Then you've got the best interests of, of the child. Um, so starting to look at what's most important uh, in, in someone's family, and, and, we, and we have a lot of different terms, but I, I, I'll be honest with you, rarely have I heard that term loving coming from anyone who works in any sort of administration or policy or, or in, in those realms. But to put that first is one of the biggest things that then pre preventing the separation of families. Um, yeah. Thank you for highlighting that, Tom, because, you know, I've gotten some, you know, uh, you know, some, I've heard that before, like love, you know, that's not, that, that doesn't go in a vision statement. Like what are you what is about child welfare about? ever been, what has child welfare ever been concerned with a loving family? Oh no. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. But you, you have to have a loving approach. And one, one way you can do that is say, would I want somebody to call child protection on my, you know, on my family, if this were the case, how would I deal with it? If it were, were, were my own family, my own nephew, my own, you know, son, my, you know, you know, my cousin. Um, but, you know, you, we would take a loving approach and that's how we need to do it, in my opinion. So you just mentioned if it was my cousin or, or a nephew or, or someone else in maybe an extended family, which leads into that second uh, goal of supporting kinship caregivers. And let me pull back and saying not all kinship families are blood related because we also deal with fictive kin or, or, or informal families. But making that an actual goal of supporting kinship caregivers. And again, I'll go back to what we're asking, what's being done at the federal level, and then what what is it that can be done uh, by those listening who work at the local level? Yeah, um, so I, you know, I almost don't, you're right, there's kin and then what we call fictive kin. We, and, you know, we use that term, but I'm starting not to like it because it makes it sound like it's like the kin are, they're, they're fictitious. And they really aren't. They're very, they're very real people in a child's life who the, the child knows, um, and can be, you know, part of the circle of, of support for the family. And so for, for those who may be listening, you know, fictive Ken might, might be uh, someone like a teacher or, you know, a, a baseball coach or someone who, um, as you said, Tom, is not blood related, but is still really Ken or part of that extended family. Um, and it's really important that we think about extended family members, extended Ken when we um, think about who in a child's life can be supportive, not only of the child, um, but of the family as well, right? And so, you know, you know currently um, there's, there's one licensing standard and, you know, the federal government has an opportunity now and we are going in that direction to allow for flexible licensing standards for Ken families. So, at the moment, a kin parent would probably have to meet the same standard in most jurisdictions as a resource parent. And a resource parent, in most cases, um, will have had significant training um, and a home, a room that is really nicely done and decorated and just ready for a foster child. And you have resource families that kind of, you know, make space for children and are just kind of ready for that, for that phone call when needed. But a lot of times, this is not how it happens for Ken. It's a last minute call. It's, hey, you know, Auntie Asia, your, you know, your, your nephew needs help. You know, are you able to whatever now? And I may have not been trained. I was not prepared for this moment in my life. Yet, I, you know, I would rather my nephew be with me than with a, um, a strange family um, across town, for example. And so what we want to do is to allow jurisdictions to have a, have a flexible licensing standard that says, hey, you know, I may not have, you know, my, I may not have a separate bedroom that's all set and ready to go for my nephew, but he can share, you know, he, he can share a room with um, a, another child in our family. Um, and, um, you know, and, and of course, barring the safety standards, we, of course, want homes to be safe and we, we you know, we would um, maintain that, but uh, allowing for um, sort of not holding uh, kin to a, a licensing standard. Of, of, a, of another research parent who's been fully trained and fully prepared. So I think we want to be able to do that. And we want to encourage states to, um, to allow Ken to step up and to support their, to support the children and their families, but also to support those Ken. So, you know, we can put, we can put, you know, a child with their grandparent or with their aunt, 
But we also have to acknowledge that that family may need help. And by that, I mean money. You know, children, children need things that cost money. So we can't necessarily just drop the child off and then, you know, turn around without, without support for that family. And so the federal government is moving in the direction to make sure that, um, you know, there's, a, there's flexibility for Ken um, and that there's uh, adequate support uh, for Ken. Um, and we and we're, we, what we're hoping is by doing this, we will shift to there's probably like I think as I understand it, about a third of the families uh, are now um, children are in care or with Ken. You know that should be close to a hundred percent, if you ask me. Um, that our our children are you know are, are living with Ken or are living with people who they are familiar with. We already know that they have better outcomes when they stay with families. They stay close in their communities. They have better educational outcomes um, and better outcomes all around. They are uh, actually their um, time to reunification is shorter. And so we want to move uh, in, in that direction when, in a last resort, a child has to be in foster care. Um, and how can states live this goal? I mean, listen, if you place a child with Ken, you know, again, make sure that, that the Kenship family is supported, um, not only with the regularly scheduled, you know, casework check-ins, um, but also with, you know, the appropriate um, financial supports and funding. So make, make that commitment when we, when we place a child with, with Ken. And recognizing also, and you'd mentioned before, this comes suddenly. This is not something that somebody normally signs up for. But they do this, again, back to, back to the theme from the very beginning, the same reason resource parents do. They, they both come from a place uh, of love. But it can be a huge change that someone's not prepared for. Okay. So support in terms of resources, yes, but also support in terms of recognizing that this is a huge change in someone's life, in these caregivers' lives. And so being there to support them um, emotionally and mentally, and at times, like you mentioned, financially, the same you would for for a resource parent um, as well. Well, then there's also the situations where where youth are still in care, and your your third goal: ensure youth leave care with strengthened relationships, holistic supports, and opportunities. And I'd like you to kind of really walk through where this one specifically came from, because. Uh, the definition of it, I'd love for you to pull apart a little bit more before we get into what's being done at the federal level and then what can be done at the local level of why this goal was something that, that, that you singled out. Yeah, and this comes directly from conversations that I had with young people who were either in foster care or recently um, aged out of foster care or, you know, maybe young adults who um, have, had been impacted by the system. You know, they talk to me about having, you know, wanting to have normative experiences when they're in foster care. They talk to me about one young lady said, you know, I couldn't even join the dance club because nobody could sign off. You know, my foster parent couldn't sign off. The agency wouldn't sign off. But I'm trying to be a normal high school student and I was unable to do that. Uh, of course, young people talk to me about, well, you know, at some point, you know, I had developed my own um, my own circle of support. Um, and I wanted the agency to acknowledge that. So it wasn't, I didn't necessarily want to be adopted. Like adoption is not necessarily for everyone. This is what young people have told me. And, um, but I did have relationships with four people who were really, really helpful to me. And I wanted those four people to sort of be my, my, um, my supportive, you know, family members. And they've talked to me about, you know, um, a shift toward allowing um, young people to identify who for them. Is their, is their extended, you know, family. Um, so, you know, I will, I will say that we started out, when we started thinking about this particular goal, and really what I wanted to do was to, for this goal to be like uh, supporting young people who are in foster care. When you're there, how can we be supportive? And then also when you are um, transitioning out of foster care into adulthood, what do we need to do? What does government need to do? You know, how can we inspire uh, jurisdictions to do more? And um, the first time we we crafted this goal, we said ensure that youth leave care better than when they entered. And and when I was thinking, you know, before I sort of rolled this out, I had conversations with young people and I talked to them about these goals. And a young person said to me in the in the, in the room that we were in and said. Well, who says, what, what does better mean? 
who determines what's better? Who what, what who defines that? Who defines what's better? And I just listened. And then another young person said, um, yeah, I don't, you know, for some of us, we didn't even need to be in foster care in the first place. So, you know, why is it, you know, the system's job to make us better? So I'm I'm in listening posture. And they said, no, we want to leave care with strengthened relationships, one person said. And then another young person said, you know, we want, we want holistic support. And another young person said, no, we want to leave, we want to leave care with opportunities. So I said, well, then, you know, how should I, I pose the question to them? So I said, well, how would, how, do, how does this goal, um, you know, how do I redefine the title of this goal? They said, ensure youth lead care with strengthened relationships, holistic supports, and opportunities. So this goal directly co- comes from young people. The wording comes from them. I'm still thinking about, like, what the federal government can inspire uh, jurisdictions to do, but also what actions we can take or what investments investments, excuse me, that we can make ourselves. Um, But I think, you know, the important, you know, what I want, the reason why I tell that story is that, you know, we have to magnify youth voice. Um, You know, we have to let them talk. We have to listen to them. Um, They actually have a lot of the answers. So, um, so I've been fortunate to be able to be in the room, to have their attention, frankly, um, and I and I intend to um, to continue to talk to young people to figure out how we're successful in in this goal. And you know, for example, in this month's uh, Children's Bureau Express, I co-authored a piece with two young mothers um, where they talk about being young mothers. And um, I just think that we need to continue to amplify the voices of young adults and listen to them. And you know, how do you live this goal? You live it by you know listening to what they're saying and taking action. Do what you can. You know, advocate where necessary. Don't listen, don't just listen for listen listening sake, right? Listen and act. Um, and really, and don't be afraid to push for change. And then for those caseworkers, that's listening and, and involving, right? When 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 the youth have their own support network and they do want to be able to, to make that clear and, and make that a part and, and be able to share it and then have that, um, supported. Um, and so uh, you made a plug, so I'll plug it as well. Children's Bureau Express, uh, for those of you that head over to childwelfare.gov on this episode's, uh, webpage, we'll make sure we have a link, uh, to that article that, that Asia just referred to, uh, on CBX. And you mentioned this at the very beginning and it's the fourth goal, uh, and, Although 2020 is behind us, we are still, I think, in this midst of the the great resignation. And and child welfare is not immune to this at all. Uh, but develop and enhance the the child welfare workforce. And while this is understood, you know, anybody can look at the turnover numbers. You had mentioned this in your vision specifically about. Um, a fully devoted workforce serving with intentional equity. And and I'll offer to you and tell me if I'm wrong, but that also means that workforce is served with equity, not only serving with equity. So that means not only how the workforce is acting, but how they are supported internally. And, I'm, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but when I saw that up front, I thought that that's a reflective both on how how a workforce acts and how they are acted upon. I like those words a lot. Um, uh, thank you, Tom. We have so much work to do here. You know, I think about um, when the pandemic first hit, and um, you, know, you know, I was working in New York City, and we were um, there was a lack of PPE all around. You know, there was just this sort of you know how do we get PPE, you know, for, for our um, child welfare specialists who were still on the ground, right. Still having to go into homes when necessary. And we kind of had to advocate, you know, there, you know, child welfare um, professionals are not necessarily considered first responders, but in my heart, they are. Um, And so we had to sort of, um, you know, the way that the city was triaging PPE, it was like, you know, our first, the, the first responders that we, that we normally think of, right, our, our police and our fire people. But, um, you know, we needed also, you know, PPE for our child welfare professionals who were going into homes and, and doing the work every day, whether there was a pandemic or not, right? Right. So, you know, they didn't, they didn't, they couldn't sort of 
pack up all of their office and their laptop and go and do their work from home. They had to still be doing it. And I felt at that time like that we shouldn't have had to um, fight so hard to get the PPE for um, these, these really important professionals charged with making sure that our families were safe and intact at a time that you know we had never experienced before. So we have a, a lot of work to do here. We have to, you know, not only think about like how we attract, recruit, and retain professionals because we know we're having issues with that, but we have to understand why they're leaving. Um, we have to advocate for for compensation that messages their, their value and, and the value of, of work of supporting children and families. Um, we need to think about you know what's really required to do the work well and who can do it best. I mean. I, I've been thinking a lot about like, are we interviewing folks with lived expertise for our professional roles? Or, you know, are we too focused on you know who has the MSW? Um, and should we be thinking about you know what other types of experience um, sort of equate with you know some of the educational requirements that have traditionally been part of our profession? Um, but also, you know, um, a, a focus on employee wellness. You know, this is hard work. Um, a lot of the professionals in our field, they go out every day. They support, you know, uh, children and, and families um, who have, 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 have any particular, you know, type of need. It can be an array of different needs. And then they have to go home often and be a parent, right, or, you know, uh, um, and you know, to support their own families. So what are we doing to make sure that, that, you know, the professionals in our field are well, that they're taken care of, right? Um, and, um, you know, even like, when was the last time, you know, I would say to jurisdictions, you you checked in on the, on the wellness of the professionals, you know, in your agency. Have you asked, how are you doing? Are we making investments and in, in wellness for them? Um, and so, there's, there's still a lot to talk about, um, and I'm still talking to the workforce and to others to figure out what exactly, you know, we can do at the federal government to be supportive. It is something that we have to deal with each individual almost on a, on a, on a human by human, family by family, case by case basis with your workforce. Because uh, as, we, as we've learned over the past two years, um, folks may be working from home, but we're all working with home. And there is no clear separation. Uh, and especially if you work in a stressful environment, that stress carries over. And how are you handling that? And, and what can you do to support, at the, you know, from, from hiring to training to promotion to support and, and that cycle all the way around? Um, but making that a priority and threading equity through. And one of the themes uh, that... I'm hearing, and of course, you just mentioned it coming from the federal level of incorporating lived experience, um, and and not incorporating it as a as a as a a step along the process, but in helping to build the process, and, and really trying to get that connection uh, of of putting a proper lens and an equity lens on on how we operate. Um, well, you talked about connecting with a workforce and you've got a different workforce to deal with now than maybe with New York. Uh, and you had mentioned your 10 regional offices and connecting with them, but each regional office is different. We have a diverse nation. We have a diverse field. So shifting gears a little bit, I'm, I'm, I'm curious now to the challenges that have come with managing that diversity within the Children's Bureau's 10 regional offices. Well, you're right, Tom. I learned quickly that each of the regional offices um, is different and, you know, they each have their own way of working with jurisdictions. And the first thing I did probably was make a conscious decision to, you know, to celebrate their uniqueness, you know, rather than trying to make them sort of fit in this, the same bag. Um, and I, I learned not only do the regional staff approach their work with jurisdictions differently, but that the, the states and the regions approach their work differently. Um, and so it makes sense that there be, you know, variation in how the work is done. I mean, just, you know, listen, this country is so vast. When I started to think about, you know, for example, what's happening in, in West Virginia and, you know, rural issues that are in, in Montana and, 
and then you have, you know, really, you know, urban areas. And so, um, so it makes sense, right, for there to be a, a different, a difference in how, um, in how the work is approached. Um, and so I don't necessarily think that's a problem. But that said, I, I have to acknowledge that we do have a compliance role to play. Um, and the diversity is fine as long as, as long as it's not leading to inequitable outcomes for jurisdictions, right? So in other words, you know, we can be different from region to region, but there's certain aspects, I think, of our monitoring role that really require, you know, fairness and consistency. And, you know, um, I think sometimes, you know, it's, it's hard to, uh, to, to strike that balance. Uh, just following up on this, I can only imagine at the policy development stages, once something is written, you have to look at it 10, if not 50, if not, you know, more than that different ways, because like you mentioned, how does this a policy affect what's going on in, in, in the middle of a major city versus how does this policy get implemented uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in a farming community or, you know, who knows where it comes into in terms of resources where I need to worry about um, clothing and weather conditions in the Northeast that's going to be completely different than Southern Florida. And just uh, so just following up on that, when it comes to developing policy, how were you able to at least try to maybe listen a little bit more to say, okay, what does this mean to everybody? And how do I make you can't make policy one size fits all, but you kind of have to make sure it does cover a wide umbrella. You do. And the way you do it is listening. You have a, having a diverse group of people at the table, right? You don't make the policy in a vacuum. You, um, you know, hear what people are telling you. you. You know, I make sure that I'm checking in not only with our, our regional program managers and our child welfare program specialists, you know, who are really in touch with what's happening. Um, on the ground, but also, you know, my, my central managers at, at Children's Bureau, right? So that when you're thinking about policy, really everybody has to have an opportunity to, to weigh in because there's so many different aspects, as you just pointed out, of, um, of you know, so many different things that we would have to consider in making a policy and to make, making sure that we're inclusive. Um, and, um, uh, and so it just really involves making sure that, you know, Pretty much everyone is at the table um, to to inform uh, how the policy is uh, developed. Well, many of those regions and many of the states within those regions also are working with with their tribal partners. And so you created a tribal think tank. Uh, and I'm curious, who's part of that group? The tribal think tank is, uh, well, it's, I created the Transformational Tribal Budget Proposal Think Tank. That's the long name, but we call it the Tribal Think Tank for short. Um, and it um, consists of, you know, um, staff in, the, in, in, in Children's Bureau who volunteered to be part of the think tank. And also, um, you know, some of my colleagues at the ACF, you know, Office of Grants Management and the um, Administration for Native Americans. So then what's coming out of that? Uh, I'm curious to, you know, any of the ideas or proposals that, that have started to rise in, in, in the months that the, the, the think tank's been operating? Well, we, I created the think tank because there are certain issues that are specifically um, that specifically impact the the, um, the access, the support, and outcomes for tribes. Um, and I learned about it really in my meetings with the regional staff. I learned about you know there are a lot of tribal inequities, and some of them are issues that Children's Bureau can fix with some time and some focus. Um, but some of them really require a legislative fix. A lot of them are you know historical, I'll say, and they require a more of a legislative fix. So I said, you know, let's start thinking about our budget proposals now. And I call it the, the transformational tribal budget proposal because I want it to be transformational and how we think about it. Um, and so, um, so, you know, so, so, so the work is happening and we're being transformative, but of course, um, I'm sure, you know, we cannot uh, talk about what um, what's bubbling up because it's all, you know, embargoed until, sure. until it isn't. But what I, what I want is for us to be able to look back in, in 10 years and say, you know, we made that very important change um, that impacts, you know, uh, uh, tribal um, access and outcomes, particularly for children. And maybe the best part of those conversations is, and again, what you talked about uh, with all the conversations is being able to learn. 
and being able to be exposed to something different. And, and instead of being affirmed, we become informed. And, and that's kind of one of the bigger themes of, of how do you understand or create uh, greater equity, greater inclusion, greater diversity is kind of exposing your own limitations and broadening those. Uh, finally, before right. and, and, not, and, and not only, I'm sorry, Tom, but not only you know listening because you hear me talk about that a lot, but yeah. you know being able to say you know after I heard about some of the the tribal inequities and I had been hearing from you know many of the regions, probably all of them about it, to really say you know okay what what steps can we take um, to address some of these inequity right inequities, and so it was really important not only to listen but also to act. Yeah, what can be done and then have the power to, to actually yeah. enact and work upon it. Um, so let's take a look ahead. Um, looking for the next year, the next 18 months, um, what opportunities do you see for the field, for the child welfare field, in this step toward overarching advancement? Mm -hmm. Opportunities. I mean, we've spent a lot of this conversation talking about opportunities to address inequities. We talked about living the goals. Um, I feel fortunate to be working with the Biden-Harris administration because I feel like this administration has already demonstrated um, um, and shown support for children and families and shown that it's among its highest priorities. So I feel like, you know, there's so much opportunity just within this administration because it has been prioritized, you know, by the president and vice president. Um, I see opportunities for how, you know, the federal and state governments can work closely with communities. I don't know that this is happening as often as it should be, but I've been fortunate to be part of some work that's happening in Phoenix where um, the state and the community are trying to come together to, to uh, keep families together, to reunite families, and to address the needs of, of, of families um, and children in, um, in, in Phoenix, for example. I'd like to see more of that. Um, I see opportunities for, you know, um, for family first, families first legislation to, you know, reprioritize, as I've said, and redefine how federal dollars are, are being spent and to um, sort of take the term upstream to the next level, if you will. Uh, I have to mention the extraordinary work that our, our federal grantees are doing and that, you know, we need to um, learn from that work and lift that work up and share it um, and implement what we know works. Um, again, we need to walk the talk of authentic engagement um, by truly listening to folks with lived expertise and Stepping out of our comfort zone. Um, when I say our, I mean a lot of you know government. We're often you know we're hosting the meetings. You know we're in control, but you know we need to be comfortable not being in control and going into communities and having the conversations. And sometimes they may feel more hostile than we want them to feel. But you know there's a lot of um, learning to be done with that sort of what what Martin Luther King would call creative tension, right? So it's um, going out of our comfort zone, going into communi communities, you know, that's a commitment that I've made, right? I'll finally be traveling this year and wherever I go, I've committed to meeting with system impacted members of the community, right? Um, we can't just talk about it. We have to be about it. So, um, so I see more opportunities to be in closer proximity with communities. I see opportunities for doing better with respect to racial inequities, as we've discussed, to check ourselves, check our own personal biases, um, ensure that there's a diverse group of people making decisions at agencies, for example. We talked about that with policy. Um, and opportunities to partner with philanthropy and other entities to, to change the trajectory of, of, of child welfare. It kind of goes back to the vision that we talked about at the beginning, some of the key words that I just noticed through that, that I've kind of jotted down and you've just talked about a little bit when it comes to walking the, the talk of incorporating community, culture, collaborative equity and starting all and starting like your vision, starting from a, a place of love and that realizing that everybody that you're working with probably has the same goal in mind as you do. 
Asia Schomburg, thank you so much for, for, for your time, uh, for your willingness to share this with, with us here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. And you just mentioned it, so I'll say it up front. Safe travels. I think we can say that now. Uh, and, and just appreciate you spending the time with us here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been a pleasure. So we mentioned the article Commissioner Schomburg co-authored in Children's Bureau Express. If you go to this episode's webpage over at www.childwelfare.gov, just search podcasts, we'll have a link to that issue of CBX for you. We'll also have links to some of our other episodes on racial equity and incorporating lived experience throughout child welfare. Plus, links to resources on community collaboration, racial disproportionality, and cultural competency. Now, also, as Commissioner Schomburg mentioned about different state laws regarding neglect, Child Welfare Information Gateway contains a deep database of state statutes. You can review nearly 40 statutes from every state surrounding prevention, foster care, and adoption, and find out what are the current laws in your area and how they compare around the nation. So, hey, if you like what you are hearing, please subscribe to the Information Gateway podcast via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. We really appreciate the growing number of you that have chosen to be a part of our community. And again, hey, my thanks to Children's Bureau Associate Commissioner Asia E. Schomburg for spending the time with us and you here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. I'm Tom Oates. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.